Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to see you today. Uh, as we said just a few minutes ago, and as we've been singing about, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, and Advent isn't so much about Jesus coming as a baby in a manger, although it leads into Christmas, which definitely celebrates that. But Advent is more about hoping and longing for Jesus to actually return one day. It's the reality, right, that we live in a world that is often broken and that is often dark. And while Jesus is at work in our lives, in our world right now, um, we wait and we look forward to the day when he comes back and he makes all things right and all things new again. Now, what's interesting is that historically, uh, there have been many periods and times where people had focused intensely on the return of Jesus, let me give you a couple examples from American history. Uh, in the 1840s, there was a movement in upstate New York um, by a guy named William Miller, and he did all of these mathematical calculations uh, based on all these prophecies and all these numbers in the Bible, and he came up with the estimated date of when he thought Jesus was going to come back to earth. And um, he attracted a massive movement. Hundreds of thousands of people were following everything he said, and, and when the day came and went, he sort of revised it, and then he made some more revisions until he was finally convinced that Jesus would certainly return on October the 22nd, 1844, all right? October the 22nd, 1844 came and went, and nothing happened. And it became known across the entire country, and historians still refer to it today as the Great Disappointment. Now, um, many people stopped following what he said after that. A few still did. There were still a few followers that continued to focus on prophecies and dates and calculations and the advent or the second coming of Jesus, and they were known as Adventists. Later, they started meeting on Saturday instead of Sunday, and they became Seventh-day Adventists. Now, a second more recent example, in 1970, Christian author Hal Lindsey wrote a book, some of you might remember this, called The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, Lindsey believed that we were indeed in the middle of the 20th century living in the end times because there were all sorts of things happening in the Middle East and in light of the Cold War, and he thought these were fulfillments of prophecies and that we were entering the end times and that Jesus would be coming back very, very soon. This book, by the way, became the best-selling non-fiction book of the entire decade of the 1970s in the United States. It was very popular. Many people read it. It inspired many other books about this in the 1980s, and it became the main inspiration for another series of books written in the 1990s called Left Behind that many of us are familiar with. Now, Needless to say, many of the things that Lindsay said would going to come true um, because of all the things happening in the world, uh, they didn't actually become true. But we might say that on one end of the spectrum, there are sometimes these uh, groups of people or there can be this intense focus right, on numbers and interpreting signs and prophecies and setting dates for when Jesus is going to come back. And of course, it's well-intentioned, right? But it's often misguided. And it can be deeply unhealthy. But you might say that there's another end of the spectrum. And, and on the other end of the spectrum might be just as unhealthy to never think about whether Jesus will come back one day. To never long for our world to be any different than it is 
right now, to never deeply consider the big questions of where everything is actually headed. And I think probably most of us are closer to that end of the spectrum. Um, Probably because a lot of us are just busy and we don't have time to think about those things. Um, Sometimes it's because all the end time stuff is just weird, right, and scary, and we don't want to become one of those people. Um, But I wonder if most of us don't really think about the return of Jesus because we're actually quite comfortable in our lives right now. I mean, yes, from time to time, we experience brokenness or setbacks or pain, or we see the pain and the violence in our world, right? But for the most part, many of us are not actually that deeply compelled to hope for or long for or yearn for something to be different. And that's what this season of Advent is all about. For those of us who are struggling, who are feeling pain, it meets us in that longing and that yearning. And maybe for the rest of us who are more comfortable or content in life, Advent should jolt us, right? It should wake us up and create in us that deeper longing. And so today, believe it or not, We're going to talk about the end times, okay? And we're going to do it for two reasons. Because one, I want to clear up some of the confusion, um, some of the mistakes that have often been made when people become obsessed with all of those end times things. But second, I want to give us a better picture of what it is we should be longing for. Why Jesus' return, why his advent does really matter. So uh, with all that in mind, I want to show you a timeline. Okay, which is kind of funny because I never thought I would show an end times timeline in a sermon because people who obsess about this kind of stuff love their timelines, right? But I want to give you a really, really simple one, and it's this. If you're listening to podcasts, I'll try to explain it. But that's us on the left, right? Just living in our world that we, again, often see is broken today. And then one day, there in the middle, Jesus will come back. That is his advent. The word advent means coming or arrival, And when he returns, he will transform this world into a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live with him for eternity. And it really is as simple as that. Now, I want to answer three questions today, just about some things on this timeline. It was four, but we're going to wait and do the fourth one uh, perhaps next week. So here's the first question. When is Jesus coming back? And the answer is, we do not know. We just don't know. It could be at any time. But we don't know. Jesus very clearly said, we will not know. If you were here last week, we read some things that Jesus said. And I just want to read a few, reread a few of those today. He was talking to his disciples one day and he said a bunch of stuff. And in the middle of that, he said, but about that day or hour, he was talking about his coming, his advent. He said, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Then he said a few more things, and then he came back and said, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Then he told them a few stories. We looked at those last week. And then he came back at the end of the stories and said, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour. Now, I don't know about you, um, but when Jesus says something once, it's probably true. When he says it twice, 
it's really probably true. When he says it three times in a row, like it's really, really true, right? So anyone who ever claims to have any sort of special insight about when Jesus is going to come back is actually contradicting Jesus himself. Now, uh, Jesus did talk about some what he called signs or some things that will happen. And these are things that will happen that uh, will happen before he comes back. And so he talked about false messiahs, people that will rise up and say that they can save the world or make it awesome again, and, and they can't, or false teachers, people who try to speak in Jesus' name, but they don't speak for Jesus, or wars, or conflict, or hatred, or famine, um, or persecution, all these sort of other things. Um, and we read when Jesus talks about that, and I don't know about you, but I think, don't those things happen all the time? Like, doesn't that happen in every generation? Has there ever been a generation in human history where there hasn't been war in the world? Where there hasn't been famine in the world? Where there aren't people who are misrepresenting Jesus? And so Jesus says, when you see these things happening, keep watch and be ready. And if you're like me, I, I think we often want to stop and say, but wait a second, Jesus, can you give us a specific time frame? Like, like, when should we be ready? And Jesus says, okay, be ready whenever you see war in the world, whenever you see famine taking place in the world. And we're saying, but hold on, Jesus. There's always war in the world. There's always famine. Oh, wait a second. I see what you did there. You're saying we should always be ready, Jesus? We should always keep watch? Yeah. So when is Jesus coming back? We do not no, but we should always keep watch. Second question, <clears throat> will there be a rapture? Answer, nope. Third question, uh, just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this for just a little bit. Um, if you grew up in church, maybe you've heard of this term, the rapture. Maybe you've never heard of it, and you're like, what is the rapture? Uh, the idea of a rapture is actually not found in the Bible, anywhere. Um, it's an idea that's not even that old. It was developed by a guy who was really smart. His name was John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. And he actually came up with this whole system of breaking human history up into these periods um, called dispensations. And he believed that, that many of the prophecies in the Old Testament uh, were given, but they were not actually fulfilled in Jesus. Um, and one day they would be fulfilled in the end times. And they would literally be fulfilled, not through Jesus, but through a restored political nation of Israel. And when these things would be fulfilled, a whole bunch of bad stuff is going to happen at the same time. And that's all described in the book of Revelation. It's called the, the Great Tribulation. And, um, and God doesn't want Christians today to have to suffer through all that bad stuff and God wants to focus on Israel and not Christians at that time. And so because of that, um, this guy in the 1800s came up with this idea that before all that bad stuff happens, God is going to rapture Christians out of this world. Meaning, if you're a Christian at that time, people who are Christians will just suddenly disappear. And they'll be teleported by Scotty up into heaven, right? And, and if you've read the Left Behind series, this is kind of how it describes it in a really sort of compelling and interesting way. Now, it's possible this is exactly how it's all going to go down, right? It's, it's possible. 
Um, sometimes our staff is, is up here working at the church and, and everyone's around and we need to have a meeting and we're all looking around like, where did Emily go? Rapture, right? Because she's the only righteous one and we're all going to be left behind. And so it's possible that it's all going to happen like this one day. But there's a few problems uh, with this idea. Um, for starters, like I said, it's not found anywhere in the Bible. The word rapture doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. Now, of course, if you start with an idea like this and you go to the Bible looking for verses to support it, you can find a couple of verses, uh, just like you can find a few verses to support racism or slavery, right? But Jesus and the writers of the New Testament never describe a, a secret rapture taking place. Also, uh, Jesus talks about the whole Old Testament being fulfilled in him. And Peter and Paul also talk about the church being the new Israel. So the whole system um, about a difference between the church and Israel seems a bit questionable. And then last, the idea that God wants to help Christians escape the world before things get really bad is actually the exact opposite of what the book of Revelation is teaching. We don't have time to talk about it, but the book of Revelation is telling Christians during that time who are going through suffering and persecution to hang in there. God will be with you in that. He's going to be present with you and he's going to help you endure and persevere. But he doesn't want to help you escape. So, will Jesus come back one day? Yes. Will it start with a rapture? Probably not. Or at least I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. All right. Uh, third question. What will eternity be like? Answer. We will live in physical bodies on a new heaven, uh, on a new and better earth with God and with each other doing amazing stuff. All right. Now, this is huge and this might be revolutionary. For you, In fact, um, this might be the most important question. Maybe you're somebody who's like, I don't care about the timelines and the rapture and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. And that's probably even good. But this is one of the most important questions we can ask. And it's one where we're probably the most ignorant. Uh, most of us have an idea that when you die, you go to heaven. Or if Jesus comes back first you'll go to heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, and many of us think of heaven as this kind of fuzzy, celestial, abstract, floating on clouds in a disembodied state, sort of boring place, right? I remember someone saying um, when I was a teenager, you know what heaven's going to be like? It, 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 heaven and eternity are going to be like a worship service that lasts forever. And as a teenager, like, that is the worst description I could have ever heard, right? I was like, okay, if you're trying to sell heaven to me, you didn't sell it very well with that one. Um, but all of those ideas about heaven, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, for starters, uh, the Bible never talks about going to heaven when you die. It never talks about us living in heaven Forever. So whatever uh, heaven is, that's not where we're going. It also doesn't describe us being uh, disembodied, as if we're uh, half soul, half body, but the real part of us is our soul, and uh, that's the part of us that's going to live forever in some sort of disembodied 
state. No, our bodies are who we are. They're part of who we are. And yes, they are dying. And yes, they are decaying. And yes, many of us can attest, they are breaking down the older we get, right? But one day they will be renewed and they will be resurrected and we will live in physical bodies, in real places, on a real earth in a new Denver, playing the sports that we like to play, playing real football or real soccer or real basketball and dancing to real music and creating real things and doing real things. All of the things that you love to do now, all of the things that bring you joy now, all of the things that give your life meaning and purpose now are just a taste of what you will experience then. Uh, the book of Revelation describes it this way. It says near the very end, then I saw, and this is the apostle John writing, he had a vision. So it's a vision and he's trying to describe what he saw. And there's some symbols in there, but it's portraying a reality. So he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So he's saying when Jesus comes back, because the section right before this sort of portrays Jesus coming back, his advent, he says when Jesus comes back, he's going to renew everything. There's going to be a whole new world, everything, a whole new created order, earth and heaven, everything that exists, it's all going to be renewed. And then he says there's not going to be any sea, which is a strange sort of detail, especially if you love the beach. You're like, wait a second, there's not going to be a sea? But this is probably one of the symbolic parts, because in the ancient world, the sea was seen as a source of, of chaos and darkness and evil and death. That's just how they viewed the sea. And so what John is saying is all of those things will be gone from the new order. He goes on to say this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Eternity with God is living on a new earth where God comes to live with us fully. And it's living there with each other without pain. What will that look like? I don't know. It's living there without sadness, without despair. What will that look like? I don't know. It's hard to imagine because every aspect of our lives is at least tainted or tinted by a hint of, of sadness or despair or pain. But it's almost as if all of those transcendent moments that we have in our lives, and we have those from time to time, right? We all experience those. Think about a moment where you've experienced the deepest and purest and truest joy. Maybe it was when you were camping. Maybe it was you were uh, skiing or snowboarding down an amazing run. Maybe it was when you created something beautiful. 
Maybe it was when you heard something beautiful. Maybe it was when you did something amazing. Or think about those moments when we experience the truest and purest love from somebody else. Trust and intimacy, right? Care, love without any fear, without any hint of anxiety. And it's almost as if those transcendent moments are just a taste. And eternity with God is the fullness of those experiences that we all so deeply long for. Uh, For me, I think the best description of this, the best description of why we should long for Jesus' advent, Jesus' coming to make all things new, the best description is found in C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I don't know why, but this passage, um, it deeply moves me. It's, it's the last book, and it's called The Last Battle because uh, evil has taken over Narnia. And all the animals and, and people that live there are under the spell of evil. And then the lion Aslan returns to Narnia, and he destroys all of the evil. And then he takes his faithful followers to a brand new place. And they're in this new place, and they're trying to make sense of what this new place is. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? Well, it would have been a jolly good holiday, said Eusis. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world. Well, if you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're, they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Why, yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. Well, I don't think... Those are very much like the ones we saw in Narnia, said Lucy. But, but look over here. She pointed southward and to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very much like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly alike. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're, they're more, well, they're more, I don't know. They're more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. And suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, and he soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, and he circled around, and then he alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are, and from up there I have seen it all. Eden's mirror and Beaver's Dam and the Great River and Care Paravel shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be? said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and yet here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed. We saw the sun put out, and it's all so different, said Lucy. But the eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, 
When Aslan said you would never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and it had an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different. It's as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. It's hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock, every flower, every blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. But it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. You see, the reason we love aspects and people and things in our world today is because it actually looks like and tastes like the real thing that we will fully experience one day. The story ends this way. Lewis says, and for this, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the story that we are invited into. This is the story we are invited to long to be a part of. This is the story that we taste and we experience in moments today, but that we long and yearn for Jesus to come and make all things new and right again. Let me pray for us. God, I pray um, for every person here today, wherever we are in our journeys of faith with you, for those of us who have doubts or questions, for those of us who are struggling, who are feeling lonely or tired or weary, who are dealing with ailments in our bodies 
or brokenness in this world, who see the violence or the racism or the things that are tearing all of us apart. God, we do ask for you to come into this world. Bring your reconciliation, your forgiveness, your healing, and your wholeness. And ultimately, God, come and make all things new. I pray this in your name. Amen.